Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've established an Access Utah tradition on or near Earth Day each year. We invite Utah writer and photographer Stephen Trimble, along with other guests, to talk about the Earth, the land, and the environment. And uh, Stephen Trimble suggested this year we shine a spotlight on Tory House Press. He says they're making a name for themselves as the only regional nonprofit press focused on publishing to make a difference for the Earth. Lots of good news stuff from them in addition to Red Rock stories. And he also suggested that we check out their blog, Full of Young Voices, which we did. And so uh, Stephen Trimble will join us and will also be joined during the hour by uh, uh, some writers who have posted recently on the blog and uh, written some interesting articles. We'll hear from uh, 17-year-old Mishka Banuri. Her article is titled, Leave It to the Kids. We'll hear from Brooke Larson. An invitation is titled for a post. Tim Glenn, Honest Hearts Make Honest Action, and Forrest Kutch, The Air We Breathe is Life. And we hope to hear from you as well. What are your thoughts heading up to Earth Day 2018? Here's how you reach us, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495. Uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day to you. Coming up on uh, Sunday, of course. A uh, lot's happened, of course, in the intervening year since we uh, had this program last year. What are your thoughts heading up to Earth Day 2018? It's always a good time to note and pause and think and feel and uh, spend some time with our relationship uh, with this amazing piece of Earth that, that we in Utah live with. You know, obviously the biggest event in the last year for Utah with regard to the Earth was the President's downsizing of Grand Staircase, Escalante, and Bears Ears. I really think that um, forces all of us to kind of grapple with how we feel about our public lands. You know, do we support an action like that? Are we horrified by an action like that? Did we even pay any attention to an action like that? And... Um, so it's a little bit of throwing down the gantlet to all of us to to respond. And uh, you know, my my job as a writer, I think, is to take on my responsibility as a citizen slash writer and write lots of op eds and letters to the editor and and be on programs like yours to keep the conversation going. Mm. I think well, anecdotally, what I detected in the last couple of years, a lot of energy uh, around public lands, especially Bears Ears. All I'd have to do is open the mic and say bear's ears, and we got you know forty calls, and then uh, <laughs> then then heading you know heading very close, and then around the time of the president's action, when we'd have episodes of the program on it, it, it seemed like uh, a little bit less response, and maybe some resignation on the part of some people. Of course, for some people, very pleased with the actions. Uh, what do you what do you think the response should be? What what will your response be <laughs> to these actions? Well, um, because you've been talking to me for years on these programs, you know what my response is. You know, I, I think it's a it's a tragedy. And uh, the president just came to Utah and made a big mess of things. We had two remarkable acts of conservation, and we were managing those, managing Grand Staircase for, for a whole generation, for more than 20 years, and preparing to work with five Native American nations to manage Bears Ears and Things were going just fine, and um, unfortunately, the president listened to our elected officials and the uh, Utah delegation, who have a a real uh, 
problem with public land designations. You know, there's a tradition in Utah, certainly, to just have knee-jerk reactions to any actions by the federal government to to uh, manage our, our federal lands, our public lands that all of us own together for conservation primarily, even if we still allow for, for grazing and mining where there are existing claims. So it's all in the courts now, and I think that I really do believe the courts will decide that the president's proclamations downsizing Bears Ears by 85% and Grand Staircase by half will be illegal. And we'll go back to the original boundaries, and we'll have to make up a lot of lost ground. It was all so unnecessary. And there, there are perfectly, perfectly good scientific reasons to make those monuments as big as they are. So, you know, I, I, I do think that the courts will play out the story. It may take years. It may take less time than that. We don't, you know, don't know yet. But in the meantime, I, I think you're right. We can't submit ourselves, can't resign ourselves to, to not responding. Uh, we need to keep speaking and having conversations across chasms and values. And as writers, we need to keep writing. Hmm. Well, and, then, and as writers, uh, we mentioned Tory House Press at the top. Uh, writers and poets are testing that proposition, right? Red Rock Stories, um, you know, it, it testifying, as it were, and uh, taking that to Congress is... Is that going to be more the role of writers? So you go go forward. Well, I think that's very much what our program is today. Um, as we headed into the year in which there's your top of everyone, and uh, uh, Stephen, you're cutting out a little bit. I don't know if you could maybe put the put a little closer to your mouth. I'm not sure what would solve that. Okay, yeah, I'm speaking to you from Tory, so the yeah. connection is a little iffy. Oh, okay. Is that, is that yeah. okay? That, that, that sounds a little okay. better, yeah. And by the way, that's, uh, you know, we're jealous, Tory, beautiful place, Wayne County. That's right. Um, and so as we head again toward the end of the um, the Obama administration in, in 2016, a bunch of writers here in Utah began talking about what we could do. And... Kirsten Allen, the publisher of Tory House Press, volunteered to help us put together a book that she then published. A chapbook version to Washington, D.C. of essays from 35 writers who donated their work to speak on behalf of Utah Public Lands and inject those words into the conversation and advocate for Bears Ears, advocate for protecting Utah Public Lands from development and Extractive Industries, and that book became Red Rock Stories, a book published in a trade edition by Tory House Press last year, earlier this year. In 2017, I'm confused about which year I'm in. Um, but Tory House Press is this tiny little nonprofit based here in Tory that publishes books for conservation. The idea is to promote environmental conservation through literature, and there's no other small nonprofit press doing anything like that in the West. So we're lucky to have them. They've published a, this book of essays about public lands that I edited, Red Rock Stories, as well as a, a small chapbook called Breathing Stories about our, uh, our huge problems with air quality along the Wasatch Front and made sure that a copy of that small book ended up on the desk of every member of the Utah State Legislature this spring. 
uh, a book edited by Brooke Larson, who I, I think you're going to have on the program. That's right. So th- that's our response as writers, just to make sure that our voices are heard. We're going to hear shortly from a young voice, Mishka Banuri, 17-year-old at West High School. Um, does this, and it seems like young people, we've heard um, more famously perhaps around the issue of, uh, uh, you know, gun violence, young people really organizing these days, but also, as Mishka will tell us, uh, a lot of young people are organizing around environmental issues. I'm guessing that probably gives you some hope for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I've taught writing off and on at the University of Utah for 10 years or so, and the last class I taught was the writing component in the Environmental Humanities Program. And uh, in, in that case, I was teaching slightly older students, master's students in their 20s, and I was so impressed with their aroused activism. These were students who were primarily focused on climate change, and uh, I, I think young people are not likely to, to join the old mainstream environmental organizations like the Sierra Club or the Nature Conservancy or, or even the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. They're activated by issues. And the big issue for young people that, that I've seen is climate change and facing a world that will be completely different from the world that we've grown up in and figuring out how to respond to that. Now, it's a, it's a different way of engaging, but I see a lot of dedication and activism and concern and, and also, you know, real mourning for, for what my generation is leaving them. I wonder, I think we're getting Mishka on the phone right now, so just briefly, what's uh, leaving activism, the writing aside, what's your, I know you've had a long experience with the land and, uh, and uh, many different experiences. What's uh, what's your experience these days? Capitol Reef National Park. What do you where where do you go? Well, I've I've been immersed in the literature of Capitol Reef over the past few months. I'm editing an anthology of writing about Capitol Reef for the University of Utah Press uh, National Park Reader series. The press is doing a series of books. Um, just glorying in the best writing of each of our national parks. And what I'm struck by over and over again is the intimate response for each person who walks those canyons, and many of many of whom have written about that experience and whose writing I'm using. And the, the greater conversation in the, the public sphere, which ends up being so angry and so far away from the land, uh, often just arguing about whether or not that last grazing permit should be continued in the park, and long-held resentments about the park expansion in traditional old-timer communities in southern Utah. The contrast between our individual experiences, which I think we all share, that's where the common ground is, and the political experience is so striking. And the message, of course, is we all need to get back to the land. We need to have those powerful, intimate experiences and incorporate those into our our activism and be out there together so that that's where we find common ground. It's the, the personal response, the personal experience that we share. And I think that's what gives me hope. If we can keep having those experiences that these people you're going to have on the program are writing about, that is the, the key to hope for the future. 
We're talking, uh, this is our Earth Day episode. We have, uh, this is a tradition of four or five years now. We have Stephen Trimble on, author of Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America, and many other books, uh, is joining us for the hour. And uh, we're welcoming in other voices, uh, specifically uh, those who have written for the Tory House Press blog. L- later we'll have Tim Glenn of Forrest Kutch and uh, Brooke Larson. Right now we bring on Mishka Banuri whose uh, blog post was titled, Leave It to the Kids. Misha, uh, Mishka Banuri, uh, welcome to the program. Do we, do we have you on? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yes. Uh, uh, thanks for taking some time. I, I know. I think this is during your school day, so thanks for taking just a few minutes uh, for us. Uh, so uh, a 17-year-old junior at West High School in Salt Lake City, uh, been an activist I'm reading since 7th grade, and... Um, as a Pakistani Muslim American, you seek to build bridges with uh, many communities with progressive values. And Mishka Banuri was uh, an organizer and MC for Utah People's Climate March this, uh, and uh, co-organized the first Utah Youth Environmental uh, Summit. Uh, so a lot going on there. I wanted to, to uh, take you back to your post there, Mishka. You, you moved at a certain point from Chicago to Utah. What, uh, what struck you most when you came to Utah? that in Chicago where I lived, um, it was a suburb and there wasn't much natural life around us. It was very um, like white picket fence kind of place. There was a lot of like green grass and um, not native flowers at all. And so once I came to Salt Lake City, um, I realized that I could go for a hike in my backyard. Um, And I think that that spontaneous uh, recreation really, really drew me towards the Salt Lake City. And you say you felt right at home. Uh, I guess you yes, I did. just felt what tell us tell me about that what what about it made you feel right at home um you know in Salt Lake in Chicago we wouldn't really fit in just because we um weren't like the cookie cutter family exactly like the cookie cutter family was husband wife and a boy and a girl um and my parents um weren't like that they had two a twin um brother and sister and then a younger boy and then we also didn't really take care of our yard the way that other people would. We would kind of let it go out and be the way it wanted to be. Um, and other our neighbors actually got pretty mad at us pretty often. They would get really uncomfortable that we would just leave our lawn be. Um, and so once I came here, I saw other lawns like mine back home, and I saw, um, I think the mountains really made me feel secure here. I don't know what it was about it, but I think the land really drew me here. Hmm. I want to quote from your blog post here. This is Mishka Benari. Uh You say, if, if my friends and I could work together, we could make our community better. Still, people told me to relax, enjoy my youth. They told me I had no reason to worry while I was young because ad- adults would protect us. To my surprise, this was not at all true. If anything, they were making it worse. So I, I guess this this realization has led you to activism. I think that... Um, it was really, I think a lot of that, my activism sprouted from fear and realization that I didn't really have anyone else to, de- to depend on because the people in power just weren't, um, safeguarding my future at all. What, uh, kind, what, what kinds of things are you, are you hoping to, what kind of change are you hoping to, uh, to make with activism? I'd like to see more of a conversation around climate justice and talking about diversity um, of, like, the impact of communities of 
um, and the impacts of climate change on, you know, people of color, women, um, and just making sure that we have that intersectional lens when talking about climate change, because um, right now I think that people think it's an optional thing to talk about, and it's not at all. I think that when talking about the problems of climate change, we need to be making sure that the most impacted voices are being heard, um, because if we're not, then we're not really helping anyone. Mm. Amishka Benara, I'd like to introduce you to the writer Stephen Trimble, who's on with us. Uh, Stephen, I don't know if you have a question for Amishka Benari. Uh, hi, Amishka. Yeah, I, I wondered if you are, uh, how you use writing. Do you journal when you have a particularly strong emotional reaction to what's happening? Do you have essays in mind that you want to work on? How do you, how do you want to continue to use your voice as a writer? and as an activist? Really, I, I think storytelling is something really, really powerful when it comes to activism. I think that's what motivates a lot of people. Um, and I don't, I don't say that I have anything else lined up in the future, but for my own personal life, I definitely um, do have, when I'm frustrated, I do write out my thoughts and um, to try to process them because writing has such a way of making sure that your thoughts are in line. Um, and I think there's t- definitely potential in the future for me to use writing. Amishka, uh, you, uh, you had an interesting response. It wouldn't be the response that I would have had. I think you're, <laughs> you're better than I was as a, as a kid. Um, after you learned about GMOs, then you started talking with your friends, you say, and you created a, uh, a school garden. A school garden because our school wouldn't let us. Um, but it was definitely it was a thought that counted. I think. Oh, the school um, wouldn't let you. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Um, but I think that um, you know starting that conversation really began from my teacher that fostered that kind of discussion in the classroom, um, and that was where it really started. I think that we wouldn't have had that conversation without my teacher there. Um, and the documentary that we saw was super thought provoking, and it I, it invoked a lot of emotions, and I just couldn't find I couldn't sit still and do nothing honestly mm-hmm. yeah and that's where it, that's where it comes I think me at 17 years old I would have seen the documentary and just thought oh well you know nothing I can do so so good on you for acting um, and I want to go there uh, there's a lot of as you know there's a lot of uh, young people um, energized lately over gun violence and uh, and it seems to be a lot of energy about environmental issues. Do you think your generation is is going to continue with this activism? I think that this is just a one-time thing. I think this is a movement that's going to continue for our whole lives, and I think that the uh, impacts of this movement will be long-lasting uh, because there's a lot of um, talk around and action towards making sure that everyone votes because young people in the last election um, were the lowest demographic that didn't vote. Um, and so there's a lot of work being done around that to change that. Um, and I think the impact of this movement is really, really going to change the way that our society works and the way that our society thinks about certain issues. Uh, Stephen Trimble, I don't know if you have any anything else for uh, Mishka, and then we uh, need to let her get, get, get back to class. Uh, the one one thing I'd ask you, Mishka, well, first I'd encourage you to keep writing and keep journaling because you have a real talent. But I wonder how much you feel you are exceptional. You know, are, are your friends as engaged and articulate and committed as you are? are do you have trouble kind of rousing that energy in your group? Uh, you know, how does that, everyone else feel at West? Are you feel feeling like 
there's a real cohort, a real, um, you know, group feeling toward making change and, and stepping in. As, as you said, the people in power aren't safeguarding your future and you're acting on that. How about, how about your friends? It's growing. It's not at the potential that it could be, I don't think. I think we're still at that stage where uh, kids don't think that they can make as much of a difference. And so a lot of my work has been to try to create a student network um, on environmental issues specifically to make sure that they know that they don't have to be 18 to make a difference. They can be making a difference now um, because it's really about survival. And I think um, it, that the, the potential is there and that it's still growing right now. Well, Mishka Benuri, uh thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking some time to be with us. And uh, Mishka Benuri is a 17-year-old junior at West High School in Salt Lake City. Uh, among many other uh, activities, she's co-founder of the Utah Youth Environmental Solutions. And we are referring to her blog post on the Tory House Press blog. It's titled, Leave It to the Kids. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, more with uh, Stephen Trimble. And uh, we'll be talking uh, later in the hour with Tim Glenn and uh, Brooke Larson. Next up will be uh, Forrest Kutch. And uh, his post was titled, The Air We Breathe is Life. More following this. This week on Radio Lab. Ladies and gentlemen, stress. They're out to get you. They're out to get you preferentially. It's really horrible. And this is a really, really hostile world. It feels like somebody's, you know, strangling you from the inside. These kids should not see this. You should hide their eyes. He's got a really nervous person in (laughs) Right now, this is no time to worry about ovulating. This is no time to digest breakfast. But it is time for Radiolab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Kathy, and I listen to Bullseye because I really like the way that uh, Jesse does his interviews, not just throwing softballs at people. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with Emmy-winning actress Edie Falco, plus San Francisco Giants outfielder Hunter Pence. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. It's an Access Utah tradition. On or near Earth Day each year, we invite Utah writer and photographer Stephen Trimble, along with other guests, to talk about the Earth, the land, and the environment. We have with us Stephen Trimble for the hour. And later in this hour, we're going to be talking with Tim Glenn and Brooke Larson. And uh, right now, we bring on uh, Forrest Kutch. It's uh, great to uh, talk to Forrest Kutch again. He is a member of the Utah Indian, uh, Ute Indian Tribe. He was born and raised on the Uinta and Ore Ute Indian Reservation. He was an education director for the Ute Indian Tribe, executive director of Utah Division of Indian Affairs, co-founded Rising American Indian Nations, and wrote a history of Utah's American Indians. Uh, Forrest Kutch, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good to good to have you with us. We have on with us as well the writer uh, Stephen uh, Trimble. So uh, thanks thanks to him for joining us. Uh, Forrest Kutch. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Forrest. Good to talk to you. Um, it's uh, so so the your blog post here on Tory House uh, Press had to do about uh, about air air quality. Um, you say the very respected Ute Indian medicine man, who was our Sundance chief, uh, referred to the importance of air in life. He said, "We need the wind to make things uh, grow." Uh, of course, air air pervades everything that we do, right? Air quality is very important. 
Yeah, that that uh, gentleman was um, uh, the esteemed uh, Jensen Jack, and he was uh, my spiritual mentor while I was uh, uh, working for the tribe as education director. He was very uh, inspirational to me, and he was the one who coined that uh, that phrase that um, we need the winds to uh, make things grow. And being a sun dancer, um, I came to appreciate. Um, fresh air, water, and food in that order. We danced for three days without um, food or water. And uh, the first thing you experience in the morning, well, when you first go in, it's a nice, cool evening, fresh air. You wake up in the morning, it's nice and cool. And then uh, you come to appreciate the warmth in the uh, early afternoon. And then, of course, it gets a little bit hot which comes to punish you later after three days. <laughs> but then the cool air comes back, and so air is essential. It becomes the number one um, uh, basic life support or essential life support system you come to be aware of. And then, of course, you start getting thirsty, and by the third day you're desperate. Uh, food, uh, you miss that also. You, you think about water, dream about it, and then you think about some of the delicious food you've had. At the end of that ceremony, you come to appreciate all three of those uh, essential uh, life support systems, fresh air, water, and food. And so that's why I make reference to the sacred Sundance of the of the Ute Shoshone people. Hmm. Uh, of course, uh, lately, there in the Uinta Basin, um, there, there, are some, there are some air quality issues. And I suffer from that myself. I, I have some respiratory problems. Um, I, I suffer from asthma. Uh, last uh, This past February, I came down with pneumonia, which was very rare for me to uh, come down sick. I've generally been very healthy. And it just snuck up on me out of nowhere. And I'm thinking uh, pollution may have had something to do with that. Now, of course, the oil industry is big out there in the Uinta Basin. Provides jobs, but uh, also is a contributor to uh, to real, air pollution. It's a double-edged sword because uh, we suffer a poor economy here in the basin, uh, and and a lot of these people depend on on jobs in the um, uh, petroleum industry, and so um, there's a lot of uh, support for it, but yet. When it comes to the uh, pollution of the air, the land, and the water, um, people are deaf to it or in denial about it. And it's um, it's a shame because this is a very beautiful, pristine area. And it has a lot to offer, and um, and we've got to do better. I'm I'm part of an effort to try to get our tribe to pursue alternative energy um, uh, systems and to perhaps come up with a transitional program out of that uh, over a 10-year, 5- to 10-year period. Mm. Stephen Trimble, do you have a, a question for Forrest Kutch? Yeah, I, I actually have some practice asking Forrest questions because I'm going to have to interview him recently for a lecture, an online lecture I created about the fossil fuel industry in Utah. And I'd ask Forrest to go back and tell us a little bit about his ideas about how to educate young people to deal with this chasm in values better. Now, how do we get our, our young people to understand the future might hold as 
we head into the climate catastrophe that faces us. What, what can we do? Unfortunately, the only um, resistance to um, uh, creating awareness among the young people are the um, adults. It's the adults we've got to get to. I think, uh, for the most part, young people are taking advantage of social media the, and, and the, um, net, the net, the internet, to uh, become educated. They're, they're probably more more open when it comes to environmental concerns than um, than their adults, <laughs> their parents and their grandparents. It's the older generations that are resisting this, and they don't understand. And I think. I think what happens is when people start taking air, fresh air, water, and food for um, um, they just take it for granted. I think what happens is we disconnect. We disconnect from the earth. We disconnect from our creator, from our Lord. And so when we do that, then um, lots of problems can develop. And one of them is ignorance and arrogance. And so we've. I think the young people are going to acquire this information it's the it's the uh, it's the uh, millennials <laughs> and it's the baby boomers we got to get to yeah that makes sense and the other thing that occurs to me Forrest, you know when you speak and when other indian people speak there's a lot of wisdom in what you have to say to us what's the best way for for those of us out in the dominant society to learn from indian elders how do we access what you know? Well, we're, we're, the problem is we're losing a lot of our elders, and even our own people are losing connection with our culture and our uh, wisdom keepers. Uh, and, and so it's really a challenge not only for non-Indian people, it's a challenge for Indian people. And uh, I think the best thing we can do is just simply... Um, spend more time outdoors and in nature and because um, we need to acquire that connection again um, with creation and I think it's a it's a healthy thing and I help I think it contributes to us in in holistic ways mentally physically spiritually and emotionally and then hopefully take that wisdom home and and try to promote it in our homes and in our schools and communities I wonder, Forrest Kutch, are, are young people of your acquaintance, are, are they doing that? Are they getting out in, in, into the land? Are they making those connections? Not enough. Mm-hmm. Not enough. I think, I think um, we need more uh, youth programs, after-school programs that take kids outdoors and explore nature. Um, I support any or all um, exploratory uh, nature-related programs, and one of the best is uh, Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots program. Uh, it's an international program serving young people, creating awareness of conservation and um, appreciation for the environment. I would like to see more Roots and Shoots um, programs um, started throughout uh, our state, hmm. throughout our nation. Just have another uh, minute maybe with Forrest Kutch. Uh, Stephen Trimble, you have a, a last question? Well, I'm just so struck by what Forrest just said and how it mirrored what, what we said earlier about individual folks getting out into the land and having their own experiences. You know, Indian or non-Indian, it's, it's that connection that is the key. And, um, you know, there's a recent book by Florence Williams called The Nature Fix, 
that addresses this issue worldwide. And she visited countries far away from the United States and, and looked for ways that other education systems and other folks in other cultures are trying to remind themselves of that connection. That's so, so I, I love the fact that with our other uh, Forrest Kutch, uh, thank you so much for taking time to, to be with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck in, in your efforts. And, okay. Uh, nice to talk with you, Stephen. Forrest Kutch is uh, a member of the Ute Indian Tribe. He was born and raised on the Uinta and Ore Ute Indian Reservation. Uh, is a co-founder of the Rising American Indian Nations and wrote A History of Utah's American Indians. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be joined by Brooke Larson and later on, uh, Tim Glenn. Uh, all of the, the, uh, the unifying factor for all of these guests is that they have written, uh, blog posts for the Tory House Press uh, blog, and we're joined for the hour by the writer Stephen Trimble. It's our Earth Day program. Hope you'll stay with us. This week, James Comey told us all that his greatest weakness is his tendency to believe that he's absolutely right. We know because he told us he's absolutely right about that. I'm Peter Sagal. We'll see if we can find a flaw in his argument. Plus, we talk to actress Edie Falco about the pretend life of crime, and we remember a very dear friend. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Join us Saturday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, roughly 70% of Americans are financially illiterate. How do I save for retirement? How do I deal with all these questions about budgeting and when to buy a house and all this kind of stuff? Everything you always wanted to know about money but were afraid to ask, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for our Earth Day edition of Access Utah. We're joined by writer and photographer Stephen Trimble. Later in the program, we will be talking with uh, Tim Glenn, uh, who wrote a blog, blog post uh, recently for a Tory House Press blog. Right now, we're joined by Brooke Larson, who works for Tory House Press, grew up in Salt Lake City, and holds a degree in environmental policy from Colorado College. She's a graduate student in the Environmental Humanities Program at University of Utah, plans to explore the role of storytelling in regional climate justice movements. Uh, Brooke Larson, a pleasure to welcome you to the program. Hi there, thanks for having me. Good, good to be with you, and, and great to work with you on, uh, on uh, interviews as we go along. We interview a fair number of people from Tory House Press, and Brooke Larson's the one who helps us to, to, to get to those people. Uh, so I, I was very interested by your uh, blog post here on the Tory House Press blog, uh, which is uh, titled An Invitation. You talk about a long bike ride that you took. You're looking for stories. Um, uh, tell us about how that uh, came about. Yeah, so I am very fortunate to be in the Environmental Humanities Program that supports creative projects. Um was wonderful to have Steve as one of my professors last year, and for my graduate project and also combining some of my organizing work, I decided to bike around the Colorado Plateau, mapping my route based on communities on the front lines of fossil fuel extraction and a changing climate and interviewing people along the way about how um, different environmental justice and climate issues are impacting their life. 
And you say, uh, I'm quoting this sentence, I felt a constant sadness. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, I mean, I was listening to some really, uh, some hard stories. You know, there's a lot of struggles around the Colorado Plateau communities that have been uh, disproportionately impacted by the extractive industries in the region from you know, when I was in the greater Chaco area in northwest New Mexico, over 90% of the public lands in that region um, is open to oil and gas. And some of those are within 75 feet of uh, particularly Native people's homes. And uh, so it was a lo- pretty dire, a lot of the places I went. But also people um, were incredibly motivated and still found hope. So I tried to hold on to that, and that was sort of the why I titled my piece an invitation inspired by um, the work of Rebecca Snowden and that we can accept the invitation to act and choose hope. Rebecca Snowden says, you quote her here, grief and hope can coexist. Tell me about the hope. What gives you hope? (laughs) Um, I particularly find hope right now in the collective action people are taking and the community-focused work, and people like Mishka, I think the work of high school students across the state is incredible and definitely gives me a ton of hope that, um, I mean, I'm quite young as well, but that even the younger generation than me is, you know, not sitting back and is standing up. And I think um, when I'm in community and see my friends doing this work, it gives me the most hope because it doesn't you know, I think hope is also rooted in not feeling alone. And so I think community is really important to sustain feelings of hope. There's a there's a picture on your blog post. You can go to Tory House Press uh, blog to see all of these uh, these blog posts. There's a picture of the, you say, and I, I missed this, in 2009 the government of the Maldives held the world's first underwater cabinet meeting. And there there they are. <laughs> with their with their face masks on and the and the scuba equipment with their assistants behind them they're sitting at a table and they are underwater uh, and i i'm i'm sure there's a point to why they're doing this <laughs> yeah i uh reference this and put this in this uh short piece that i wrote because to me it's this example of uh how powerful creative action can be and so they did this um, in advance of the 2009 UN Climate Change Conference as to put out this powerful statement that if we don't globally act on climate change, then there the Maldives will literally be underwater um, in potentially, like, my lifetime. So uh, I just, that was an example to me of how we can think more creatively to show climate change because I think that is maybe one of our biggest challenges of making this issue that's not always visible visible. Stephen Trimble, I'd give you a chance to ask some questions of uh, Brooke Larson. Uh, hi, Brooke. I wanted to ask Steve. you, um, could you just tell us a story from your bike ride? What were the, just take us back to a moment that was particularly moving or made you shift in your thinking. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the most, the moments that I did not anticipate uh, being so emotional for me and ended up being, you know, those stories are always the ones that stick with you, was when I went to uh, 
the San Juan National Forest in southwest Colorado with Bill Anderick, who's a climate scientist here at the University of Utah, and he grew up in Cortez right outside the San Juan National Forest, and he's studying the aspen die-off there. And I had no mm. idea that aspen were as threatened by climate change as they are. You know, we were standing in this forest where he grew up camping and hiking and hunting and fishing with his family and um, places, you know, that are backdrops to family photos. And he said that Aspen uh, stand no chance of adapting to climate change. So basically, in my lifetime, I could see the species uh, completely die off in the Southwest. And that we're already seeing that with the drought in the early 2000s was two to three degrees centigrade hotter than any drought on record in this region. So uh, for me, I, um, growing up in Salt Lake and going up in the Wasatch, I've always felt this strong connection to aspen groves. Um, and so that was pretty confronting to me to realize this species that I think is so iconic in the American West uh, may completely die off in my lifetime. Yeah, the amount of change we're facing is is so difficult to actually comprehend. You know, when I think back to my days wandering around in the Colorado Plateau and the Great Basin when I was in my 20s, you know, that's now close to 40 years ago. It's two generations. It, my experiences are now historic experiences. And uh, to think of what it's going to be like for my grandkids who have yet to be born, uh, it's it's very difficult to grapple with the amount of change that has happened that we didn't even notice and the amount of, the amount of change that's coming headlong toward us. I wonder, um, Brooke Larson, I, I would like to get you to tell me uh, another story from your from your trip. You visited, uh, you say, uh, some representatives from Diné Care, and the CARE stands for Citizens Against Ruining Our Environment, which is a, pr- a pretty direct uh, <laughs> foundation for an acronym. Um, and taking that name, you could, uh, I, I could guess uh, maybe these people are kind of, uh, you know, strident. But but they uh, t- they talked about uh, you got to feel joy, you got to have a sense of humor. Yeah, that was uh, particularly powerful for me meeting with um, some of the. Dene women and elders on the Navajo Nation. Um, Dene Care started in the 1980s uh, when a toxic waste incinerator was being proposed to be put on the reservation, and they successfully stopped that. And now they've, you know, worked a lot to help uh, with groups across the Navajo Nation in resisting uh, extractive projects and. They, I found something so interesting as they were telling me that, um, like, humor is built into the Diné language, the Navajo language, and that, you know, they will, obviously, they have faced generations of injustice, and what sustains them has really been this humor um, that they maintain in their culture, that they're, like, kind of constantly poking fun of one another in a really loving way, but that is just so central to their culture and their language. Mm-hmm. Stephen Turbel, do you have a, a last question for Brooke Larson? Um, I, I would ask you both a little bit uh, of the same kind of question I asked Forrest in terms of having generations work together. You know, when I taught you and your, your students, I learned so much from you guys about 
using different framing language around climate change in emphasizing climate justice and environmental justice and uh, the intersectionality of all the, the crucial issues for people. You know, it's, it's new language for people in my baby boomer generation. And I, I, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about your experiences in working across generations and using your millennial perspective and working with us old folks and uh, having the, the different kinds of energy and activism uh, intersect and in a synergistic way or in a difficult way. How do you, how do you see that issue? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think one my generation is thinking about more and more. Um, I organized this conference called Uplift. It's focused on bringing young people together to act for climate justice. But this past year, for the first time, we had an elders night because we recognized the importance of this intergenerational learning and that uh, our generation, my generation, has a lot to learn from um, the work that older generations have done in protecting the environment and um, social justice causes. Like, for example, you know, there's this group here in Salt Lake Elders Rising that is working on climate justice, and a lot of those people were involved in the anti-nuclear movement. And so um, how past movements can, what they can teach us about now, um, and also building on even if my generation has taken on a slightly different lens in the conservation movement, um, historically I still think we're, you know, building on that legacy and working together to figure out what's next and how do we respond to issues like barriers and Grand Staircase that brings the knowledge of previous generations together with my generation's um, focus on justice and climate change issues. Well, uh, Great. Thank you for that word. Uh, good luck with everything, uh, Brooke Larson, and uh, and uh, thank you so much for everything you guys do at uh, Tory House uh, Press. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and other contributors to Tory House. Uh, thanks. That's Brooke Larson. Uh, she works with uh, uh, Tory House uh, Press, and uh, she holds a degree in environmental policy from Colorado College. She's a graduate student in environmental humanities program at University of Utah plans to explore the role of storytelling in regional climate justice uh, movements. So we thank her. We have uh, for the hour Stephen Trimble, and you can uh, uh, find uh, him at his uh, website, which is stephentrimble.net. Uh, next up, we uh, we uh, bring in uh, Tim Glenn. His uh, post for Tory House uh, Press blog was called "Honest Hearts Make Honest Action." Uh, Tim Glenn. Uh, is a historian, writer, musician, a student of the West. His novel, Forever Desolation, won first uh, place in the 2017 Utah Original Writing Competition. He lives with his wife and uh, two children in Green River, Utah. Tim Glenn, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so, Tim Glenn, I, I loved your blog uh, post, and you uh, maybe you could tell us the the, the story. You, you talk about your grandfather, who you describe as a former businessman, Mormon bishop in Los Angeles. He's returned to Utah, and he gathers up the grandkids, he wants to take them out uh, into the mountains. Yeah, it was uh, several years ago now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he he had sort of grown up in Utah, had grown up in Ogden, and um, then moved away uh, and, and did a lot of work in business, came back to retire. And, yeah, um, I think it was one of the first things we did when he came back as, as a group. He, he organized this a group of my cousins and I, um, and yeah, we hiked into the, the Wasatch Mountains, and uh, 
the reason it made sense um, to, to submit for this this project um, is because it's um, it's always sort of it's always sort of stuck with me because I can remember so clearly we laid in this meadow um, with with my grandpa and he was sort of taking a nap, but he was he was kind of poking fun at my cousins who still lived in southern Los Angeles uh, or in, in southern California and um, just sort of saying like that's that's what a blue sky looks like, you know that this is clean air and. Um, I remember sort of being so proud of that moment um, because it was my home, and you know this is this is such a special thing that I get to do that that my you know cousins I think we were like you know twelve, so obviously I was very competitive. Um, yeah, it was it was it was an interesting moment, and it stuck with me because as you know as I've grown, um, those moments are sort of uh, fewer and fewer. Uh, and far further and further between, you know, you, you don't get those moments as often. And, and the the dialogue and the story, the narrative for the Salt Lake Valley and for Utah in general is not that same sort of um, clean air, open sky um, that I that was such like a, a meaningful moment for me in in my story. You talk about this, uh, you know, the, the this clean air and. Uh... This beautiful experience you shared. You talk about this as uh, an inheritance, a birthright. You hope to pass on to your children. Now you're worried that uh, may not be able to do that. Well, yeah, I think that that's. Um, you look at um, the how serious uh, our communities take clean air. I think a lot of us worry about it, but we don't take a lot of action. And in in the story, I try to sort of compare it to to Southern California, where yeah, they still have air issues, but they really dug in their heels and tried to solve some of those problems. And, and um, since these, a lot of these stories were going to the legislature, I saw it as a moment to sort of say, um, hey, this is possible. We can attack this problem and, and fix it. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, you, you can sit back um, on the outside and sort of feel a little jaded and think, like, why aren't we doing more? And so, yeah, it, it, there are times, certainly, uh, I, I like to think of myself as more optimistic, but there are times, certainly, where uh, you wonder if, and will I, will my kids get to to experience or at least have that same sort of identity and narrative? Uh, Tim Glenn, we have uh, the writer Stephen Trimble with us as well. Stephen, do you have a question for Tim? I do. Hi, Tim. Um, wanted to ask you about living in Green River. You know, you're bringing a a pretty thoughtful and maybe urban perspective after having lived in cities toward the the environment, not looking at land so much as a commodity, but as a, a community that you belong to. Um, what's it like living in rural Utah for you? Um, you know, that's an interesting question, because I I was worried about that moving here, um, and I think that um, what I've realized over the, you know, I've only lived here for a little over four years, but um, what I've, I find is that, um, we're a lot closer to each other than we think, um, and a lot of, a lot we, we all care about a lot of the same issues, um, and and I think that there's a lack of dialogue, to be quite honest, between the two groups and a lot of um, sort of talking past each other instead of respecting the other's uh, opinions, and that's something that I just through community here, just sort of getting to know people, and and these are things that I like to talk about, public lands are things that I really care about. It's interesting, you know, they're just sort of, you know, like the idea of wilderness is is something that um, is obviously touchy, but um, we're not that far away from each other on those sorts of things. Um, people still want to experience isolation if they're in urban area or rural areas. Um, people still want to have clean air. People still want um, 
to just sort of have access to public lands, but also it's their livelihood, right? Um, and so if we if we sort of I don't know. I think a lot of times we don't value how much that means to them. That it is their livelihood. It's not sort of like they have another choice. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's something that's really sort of um, been clear to me in, in living here. Now that makes sense. It's, there's common ground that we don't recognize until we have those conversations. So how, how do you encourage people to have those conversations? What do you recommend for folks who are coming down from, from the Wasatch Front to rural Utah to hike or to camp or to fish or, or to explore, you know, what's the best way for them to open those conversations up? That's a, that's, that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have an answer to it. At one point I, I thought that um, I, I thought this should be some sort of exchange program and everybody should spend a year in high school. Like rural people should go to an urban area and urban kids should go to a, a rural area. But I think if um, the – what it really comes down to is trust and relationships. And I think that a lot of times people from urban areas, like if you're, if someone's coming to, to visit our public lands here, um, to sort of not recognize that um, this is someone's backyard, even though those, you know, legally those federal lands or those public lands belong to all of us, that you, there has to be like a recognition that the people who are living here and, and this, this goes against everything I believed when I was, you know, at the University of Utah, but people who are living here do have a deeper connection just by the fact that they're next to it. It's part of their story. It's part of their um, history and their heritage, and and um, they may not have ownership of it, but, man, do they care a lot about it. And I think that when they perceive that, that someone from a totally different place comes in and doesn't respect that, um, that's where we, we start to see... Um, some division, and and so I guess I would say, like, to start with respect and a recognition that, yeah, this is your home, even if we all have access to it, this is your home, and I'm almost, we're all guests on that property, but um, I'm a guest from further away, and to sort of just come with a, a humility that, that that's what I would recommend. I don't know if that's that's uh, feasible or not. But. <laughs> that was really well put, and I would I would also extend that to. Visiting native native people, you know, rec- respect, recognizing that, that this has been their home for thousands, literally thousands of years, mm. and remembering that every time we visit anywhere in the West, really, which was all native territory to begin with, and, and interact with the native folks that still live there. Yeah, I would so agree with that. I run a museum here, and um, this was Ute land, and uh, we we only talked about Fremont and Anasazi people before I got here, and it was sort of like, hold on, the Utes are still the people here, and it's sort of like, that's that's a message to rural folks as well, to have that humility, and yeah, you've lived here for a while, but also, like, I mean, you look at Bears Ears, you look at San Juan County, those people were there for so much, I mean, that is their home, that's their origin story, that's their Garden of Eden, and so um, that goes both ways, that goes for, I think, uh, the, way, the thing I always say is that, man, we all just need a whole lot of humility, and if we start there, um, conversations will be so much easier. And that's uh, probably a good place to end the conversation. We're out of time. Um, but I love, uh, Tim Glenn, I love your idea of uh, being, you know, having exchanges, exchange students, that we all ought to live in each other's shoes for a while. 
And that uh, that applies to not only the environmental divide, rural, urban, but uh, political divide. That'd be interesting. Anyway, uh, Tim Glenn is a historian, writer, musician, student of the West. His novel, Forever Desolation, won first place in the 2017 Utah Original Writing Competition and lives with his family in Green River, Utah. Tim, thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, Stephen uh, Trimble, uh, 30 seconds, last word on the program today on this uh, our Earth Day episode for 2018. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Uh, I'd like to mention one other Tory House press book called Nature, Love, Medicine, Essays on Wildness and Wellness, edited by Tom Fleischner, another collection of pieces by a bunch of terrific writers. And uh, I, I wanted to emphasize at the very end here that Tom's point in this book is that the fundamental premise of the book is that nature is a place to heal because we are literally born to practice natural history and that we will be healthier when we do so. And I think what he means by practicing natural history is simply paying attention. And so many of the people who spoke on your program today talked about going outside, connecting with the place, opening yourself up, listening to the stories of your neighbors, it really is all about paying attention to the to the earth and to each other and, and to our shared community. And if we can continue to practice that, as, as Tom puts it, practicing natural history, pay attention, we'll make a whole lot of progress toward dealing with the issues that uh, Well, uh, Stephen Trimble has been with us uh, for the hour. You can find him at stephentrimble.net. Tory House Press you can find at toryhouse.org. Stephen Trimble, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Tom. I'll see you next year. I'll see you next year. All right. And thanks to everyone for uh, listening to Access Utah today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.